Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And joining me is somebody who's known about Mixergy for years and years. And we should have had you on, Travis, a long time ago because you're a guy with multiple exits and an interesting background with the whole M&A experience. And uh, you've been out there publicly for a long time. And I should have caught on and had you on. But for some reason, I didn't. And then you built this company, which you sold recently. And you've decided, you know what? I've been two heads down. I've been disconnected from being public. It's time for me to come back. And thankfully, the first place you came is uh, to a friend of mine, and he introduced me uh, to you so we can have you on. Travis, uh, whose voice you're about to hear is Travis Steffen. He is the founder of multiple companies. Um, I thought they were all like success, success, success. It turns out that there was one big setback in there that nearly knocked, actually, did knock it all out, put him in the hole for a million dollars, he told me. And then he came out with this latest business that changed everything. And the company was? Uh, this, latest, this latest one was Growflow. How much did you sell it for? Just a hair shy of 70 million. What was the business about? It was a B2B SaaS serving the cannabis, licensed cannabis businesses. We did compliance, inventory management, point of sale, analytics, we had sales tools, basically a back office suite for licensed cannabis companies. Uh, we had about 1,700 and change across the country. We were one of the largest uh, in the country for what we did when we sold. Can you give me an example of like what a typical customer would come to you for and how you'd earn money from it? From yeah. So, so let's say, for example, there are numerous different types of cannabis companies. You have the growers and cultivators. You have manufacturers, you have distributors, you have dispensaries, right? And you have various little smaller operators in between labs and so forth. We didn't service those, but we service the other kinds. And the laws in each state, first and foremost, are all wildly different. Licensure structures are all wildly different across state lines. And many of the successful companies have operations in different states. The restrictions that you have to incur just from a compliance standpoint, keep in mind, these don't have any business value whatsoever other than keeping your doors open and legal with the government. And they don't then see you as a, a black market operator. Every single time you have a new plant in the facility, you have to report that to the state. If that plant moves to a different room, a different shelf in the same room, you have to report that to the state. If the plant status changes, if it if it sprouts, wow. if it flowers, if it's harvested, if it's dried, if it's you know manufactured in any capacity, you have to report all those activities to the state in very specific ways, or you could incur fines, you could lose your licensure, and even like experience jail time. Um, it is a, a very weird market right now because it is still federally illegal, and statewide it's it is legal in numerous markets or varying yeah. degrees of legal but by the time we sold we had uh we had helped our customer companies sell over three and a half billion in product so when you sell how much of the exit did you get to keep personally wow what a question um so personally with with any of them it, it kind of varies on the deal the deal types are always either you know, all cash, all stock or a mix. And then like, so this last one was a mix, but, and, and with this one, there are elements of it that I can't talk about, um, but I'll talk about a little bit of it that I'm able to. Um, so with this one, it was a mix of cash and stock to a company that, that um, we really loved and 
uh, were an in, they were an industry participant as well, uh, just in a different way. So we had a lot of complementary crossover and they had a lot of customers we didn't have and vice versa. So it was a really cool one plus one equals three sort of marriage. And uh, the team and the board, um, they've had a lot of experience in their sector, which was like fintech. And um, with this one, so so we basically, you know, we were able to make a fair amount of money for our investors on paper, um, but a good chunk of that deal was stock. And with a deal like this, I mean, for myself, so I was not a founder, like an original founder of Growflow from day one. Um, I came on kind of as like a founder CEO kind of role with uh, an executive team that I recruited. I want to say it would have been a, a little over a year in the, the two founders went through an accelerator program that I was a mentor at. And um, they just realized they wanted to build the product. They didn't want to build the organization. So we took over the company fairly early, scaled it up to just south of 10 million in annual revenue. And that's when we sold. So personally, I only had something like four or 5% of the company at exit. Um, and even inside that, a lot of our, our investors had liquidation preferences um, because it was a, it's a great area sector. There's a lot more risk that you incur as an investor when you play into a great area sector. So their liquidation preferences, the way those work is they get paid a certain percentage of their overall investment before anybody else gets anything. And then their equity gets converted into the commons. So they participate in that upside as well. Um, so they're like in any business for the most part, investors almost always do better than founders. Wow. And even the professional investors do better than the angel investors at times when things just do okay, if not spectacular, like uh, off the charts. And that's really painful to see somebody do really well and still end up with a fraction of your investment as an angel investor. And it's one of the things that just feels like such an icky experience that I just didn't enjoy being an angel investor. It can, it, it certainly can, especially if you're not willing to really play hardball. As an angel, you're oftentimes a former founder. You have a lot of empathy for the people involved. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a professional or institutional investor, oftentimes you're a finance person. Like you're, you've got a job and you're, yeah. you're starting a company of your own and you have your own limited partners, your investors, who you have like a contractual obligation to and a fiduciary responsibility to. So it's the way I see it. I never really felt like it was icky because that, that's just those guys' jobs at the end of the day. And we knew the kinds of deals that we were making when we made them. And yes, of course, you always want, um, or I always want like a bigger piece of the pie uh, in, in a situation like that because you give your heart and soul to something. But um, I still have a great relationship with with our investors to this day, for the most part. Um, there are some of them that, you know, no matter what you do, you can't make them happy. Um, and that's just kind of, kind of the nature I, of that. But our main ones, I have a good relationship with still. One last thing, and then I want to get into your story. But did you end up, I think you were not a millionaire before you sold. Did you end up being a millionaire after the sale? I, I was from a net worth capacity uh, before okay. the sale. Like, thankfully, I've been like... I've been uh, investing fairly well, like in real estate and so forth, okay. in other companies along the way. Um, so, like, I have been in a, a good place for for a while, um, but more so after the sale. Now that that company is still a private company, so like we will need that company to do well, and they are now. Um, okay. There was a, a moment in time though, because of the like we sold before this whole crazy tech downturn, where everyone was doing layoffs and and torching their valuation. So it was scary for a moment there to see right after the fact we sold, 
Um, there was a lot of uncertainty in tech in general, but, you know, thankfully the, the management team over there was really savvy and they were able to, to keep the ship afloat and they're back on the up and up. I think the first place that I saw you was when you were running a site called Workout Box, which was like a health and weight loss and bodybuilding type of site. And from what I remember, it was content-based with like a membership upsell. Am I right about that? That's correct. Yes. Good memory. Like you're one of the first people to believe in that space back when the idea of selling content and selling at, and selling anything made you into an internet marketer, which a lot of people were just put off by. Yeah. Yeah. This was like almost, this was probably 10 years ago now. We maybe I think we sold that company maybe nine years ago. Um, so it's incredible the details that you remember on that. That's awesome. Um, how big did that business get? We were getting at our height, we were getting, you know, several hundred thousand, maybe over a million in uh, unique visitors per month, the site. Mm -hmm. Um, the business from a revenue perspective was never super massive. I want to say at our height, we were making a couple of million dollars a year. Okay. Um, we did we, the, the site, however, in my entrepreneurial journey, this was very early. I, I didn't have an entrepreneurial education. I didn't have a business education of any kind. I was in school for exercise physiology and biomechanics. I was just getting my master's during this time and graduated, moved to LA because I'd seen entourage and I thought it looked like a cool place. And, um, so I escaped Iowa and we were just building this company every day. It was my business partner, Simon and I, uh, and he was traveling the world. He's from the UK. He was living in Fiji. He was living in Canada and climbing the Canadian Rockies and things like that. And we were just building, I was living in Thailand for a little while and we were just building this company being lifestyle entrepreneurs. We hadn't taken any venture backing, not because it was strategic. We just didn't know how. And during that time, I mean, we were just kind of the early days of internet marketing and learning how to convert traffic. It was still pre that. I mean, I think Google website optimizer had just launched maybe the final year of the company. So we we're just starting to get into AB testing a little bit. Neither of us knew anything about paid traffic. And so everything was SEO. Everything was SEO. We were number one in search for workouts, for exercises, for workout programs and exercise routines and beating everyone on the internet at those. And then we got the Google algo slap and, um, and that kind of went away. I think we lost 90% of our traffic uh, basically overnight. And um, just had to figure it out little by little. And thankfully, it was just us and maybe a couple offshore engineers. Uh, that was it. We didn't really have a team. We didn't know how to build a business. We just were kind of trying to figure it out in in a way that was like paid. <laughs> so you it was a fun build a, ride. You didn't build a community. You didn't build a following for a blog. It was just searches for terms like home workouts. And then people would see a few home workouts and hopefully give you their email address and then sign up. Yeah, there was no, there was not a lot of social media for business back then. I mean, honestly, I, I think Facebook was still just college campuses at the time. Uh, there was MySpace, but that didn't really do much for us. But I, I think um, there were some blogs that were really building followings at the time. I think Ramit yeah. Sethi was the guy who was doing um, mm -hmm. at the time, I will teach you to be rich. And he built up a yep. following and then he had his email list and all that. And it seems like that wasn't yeah. your thing. At some point you discovered search engine optimization. You focused like crazy on that. And then that mm -hmm. took off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, we had a little blogging feature on Workout Box for members and myself. We could post updates. We had forums. So we had a community okay. aspect of it, but it wasn't on any other platform or anything like that. 
Um, and honestly, guys like Ramit at the time, like, and, and maybe even still to this day, who knows? I know he's like, I still look at his stuff in awe a lot of times. And uh, I see him at the gym and I'm always fangirling and I'm afraid to say hi. Because uh, I think he lives in LA too, or at least his doppelganger does. But um, at like at the time, you know, he everybody was leaps and bounds where I thought I was. I was just kind of learning on the job, and we we knew very little and thought we knew everything. How did that but end up? What happened to Workout Box? We sold Workout Box to a publicly traded company in. I want to say it would have been February of 2014. Mm -hmm. So about nine, actually almost exactly nine years ago. And we went through an M&A broker for that. That was the first time I've ever done something like that. And we got NDA'd on basically every detail. Um, but what I will say is when we sold, I want to say revenue was like mid to high six figures or something like that, but it was autopilot. There were three of us in the company. It was myself, my business partner, and like one offshore engineer we were paying by the hour. And uh, that was that was effectively what the whole business was. Actually, a friend of mine was like part-time running customer service and went with the company when it sold. Um, and he was actually my roommate as well. So that was that was a, an interesting an interesting development. But at the end of the day, it wasn't a massive acquisition, but it was more money than I've ever seen in my life. And You're talking I hundreds of know, thousands or millions for you personally? Uh, it was it was less than a million in cash okay. to me. Personally, uh, I, I think I was like a 35% owner in the company. So then how'd your uh, life was, change after an exit like that? I mean, I, I had never had a whole heck of a lot of money in my bank account ever, mm. to be honest with you. I was always bootstrapping. I always had multiple projects. So every dime I had in the bank after bills, and I always had roommates at that point, so the bills weren't much. Um, I was throwing into new projects and multitasking a lot, just trying things. Um, so I was always like on the edge of broke at that point in my career on purpose. Um, and I wouldn't trade that time in my life for anything. Cause I learned so much just through having to, like, there was no other option, but to learn at that point in time. And, you know, tried a lot of things from a business model perspective that didn't fit, uh, tried a lot of things from a product perspective that were just my ideas. And like, I've learned now that that's the worst way for me to start a business, um, is, is with my own ideas. So, uh, but had to go through those lessons in order to, to ingrain them into my skull. All right. I want to know about the one that took you down into, into negative territory, but first I should say my sponsor is, um, origami, which creates DAOs. And I've got to tell you about this podcast I created for origami. It's about DAOs. And the most recent interview that I did was with this guy, Colin, who, he had this business where he was turning all the phone booths in Manhattan into Wi-Fi uh, booths, you know? So you walk through Manhattan and you get Wi-Fi and it was like this amazing thing that made it to the news. And I asked, and I asked him, what'd you do after? And essentially what he did was he decided he wanted to live out of a van, play the guitar at night by campfire, that kind of thing. Well, if you live in a van by yourself and you're playing guitar to yourself, it feels pretty freaking lonely. And so what he decided to do was create a community of people who wanted to do the same thing. But where does this community go? And so he had this vision and he posted it up on a blog and other people gravitated towards it. The idea was, what if we all get some land together and then we can be out by the campfire together and we can be in our vans in our own little space, but also commune for dinner or for campfires or for whatever. And then if you do that, why just have one property? Why not have multiple properties around the world? So if you're in a van, travel to a place, see part of the community travel to another place, see another part of the community. That was his vision. Now, when you have a vision like that, you could do a, you could do it a few different ways. A traditional model would be to say, I'm going to buy some land and then I'm going to rent it out to people and that's how I'll make money. But the problem with that is 
And this is a story that's in the podcast, by the way, that I'm trying to promote here. The problem with doing it that way is you end up creating trailer parks. And we see trailer parks. They're basically some dude who's collecting money for giving you as little land as possible. Even if it starts out with this big vision, it ends up being like that. And so he said, I don't want that. What do I want? I want something that's true to the community. And so he ended up creating a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, where the community members get to vote. The community members get to decide how things, uh, what to buy, how to run it. And because it's a DAO, there, there's infrastructure in place for doing all that. Like we all know NFTs being these arts that you buy, this uh, digital art that you buy and sell. There, the NFT actually gives you voting power, gets gets you access to this land that you decided to buy for the for the DAO. Anyway, in, incredible, insane story. I love hearing new ways of forming organizations. That's what excites me. And that's why I created this uh, podcast with Origami, which launches DAOs similar to the one that I just told you about. If you want to hear about Kift and so many others who are starting new businesses in a new way, go check out joinorigami.com slash podcast. Join origami.com slash podcast. All right. Which is the company that, that took you into negative territory? Well, hold on because that was awesome. And uh, the like weird synchronicities with that story that you just told Andrew were that uh, um, one of my first companies that I started on my own uh, during the workout box era, which we had run for five years, actually was kind of like a precursor to Bitcoin and blockchain without us even knowing it. Okay. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I had ever built something of my own. And, and I just had this idea. I'm like, oh, what if you could send someone money without even like actually transferring it? What if it just went on this weird ledger thing and I could just give you a code that only worked for you and I could broadcast it on the Super Bowl if I wanted to, but only you could cash it in. So we created this piece of technology. It worked. And our lawyers got back to us and like, you're creating a currency. We can't have you do this. Like, this is illegal. And ridiculous. And you're like 23 and your name is on it. So figure it out. And so we ended up selling it to a Canadian financial institution who I think figured out the same thing and put it on the shelf. Um, so like DAOs and crypto is always near and dear to my heart. And I always wonder what if I had uh, gone down that rabbit hole a little bit deeper in a different way. And then I actually do this... own a mobile home park. Uh, so you do? That's, that's, that's a killer yeah. business. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky business in terms of, so I own a, a, a little, you know, growing real estate portfolio. And that's the only um, one of those assets because it's a little uh -huh. bit more high maintenance and is all it? my other stuff is 100% passive and I just get checks. Okay. Um, but it's it's a fantastic commercial asset if you can actually dedicate the time to it. And so how much time are you dedicating to managing it? I I, I don't dedicate any time to managing it, but my one of my partners in, in, the, in that particular asset does a tremendous amount. And uh, um, I feel bad that he does so much more than I do, to be honest. I was looking at your face as I did that. And I said, something just, he immediately just looked down and I thought, am I going too long now? And I said, no, no, I have to keep going. And that's what it was. So it was funny. like me saying some dude owns a mobile home and eventually it loses that, that, uh, campfire spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and honestly, like maybe 20% of our staff at Growflow were all van life folks. Like they just loved it. And so that was a really fun aspect of the company culture as well. Anyway. I didn't wait. Your story. It, I love these freaking ideas. There was a period there where if you had an idea like that, some lawyer would turn you off and you wouldn't do it. Like I remember talking to um, uh, StubHub. I said, 
I thought that you weren't allowed to resell tickets, that that was scalping and scalping's illegal. It goes, everybody thinks that this is illegal. Lawyers will tell you it's illegal. It goes, I had to push through and understand a little further. And it turns out it's not illegal. It's just, I don't know, frowned upon or something, or mm-hmm. it's perceived to be illegal. And he pushed through it. And I think he ended up selling to eBay. And that was one of the original Amazing. podcast episodes that I did for Mixergy. That's incredible. Um, what a great story. Yeah. This yeah. is like the fact that we were shut off. Okay. Tell me, tell me the company then that took you into negative. So um, the next one that I started after Workout Box, and there were a couple while I was running Workout Box because I was multitasking a ton and didn't realize the consequences of that at the time. Um, but I was spreading myself across multiple ventures uh, that I was starting and, and sold a couple of those for a couple bucks and it was nice. Um, but uh, the next one after Workout Box that I started on my own without a partner, it was, I'm just kind of embarrassed the name. It, it was called Cyber Superpowers, right? And Cyber Superpowers was, I was building product pods of like a product manager, an engineer, a strategist, and a designer. And I was fractionally renting out access to them to, cu- to customers that couldn't afford a full product team and who had tried to just hire engineers by themselves in the past and didn't understand what was happening. So they didn't have that product manager voice that was like communicating technical items in non-technical ways, et cetera, et cetera. Ended up being a really good business. We're doing a lot of client babysitting. So I hated my life. And about a year in, we got an offer to sell from a graphic arts firm in Manhattan that just wanted to expand their portfolio of products that they could upsell to their like fortune 500 type customers. Um, I think like one of the, one of the sites that we ended up doing, like during the transition period, when we were handing the keys to them, was like the puppy bowl. If you remember the, the Super Bowl um, alternate viewing experience on another channel, it's just a bunch of puppies with a toy football and it was awesome. I don't know if it still exists, but uh, we built the technology for that at one point. And in that process, I had already sold a handful of companies. We had gone through m and advisors. We'd gone through an investment bank for one. Uh, and then one of them just was very clean and it just went through an attorney and there were no issues so I just thought that was the way to do it. It was the cheapest. I thought that I had a bunch of experience and knew what I was doing. And uh, the guys on the other side knew what they were doing more. And so they structured uh, a down payment and an earnout. And it was a it was a service-based business, unlike the tech companies that I was running. And because of that, the fact that it was a service-based business, I did not think to introduce any of the dynamics of a company like that into the deal, meaning what if the staff revolts against a new company culture, which is exactly what happened. Wow. Um, they did not like the, they were used to a really, because company culture has always been one of my favorite things to focus on as a CEO. And so the places that I try to focus on building in, you know, always number one is like, we want to make this the best place to work, you know, to, to get the best possible talent. And the guys that we sold it to were kind of like an opposite approach. And, and that works too, just not when you try to cram a square peg in a round hole. So they were a lot more just productivity numbers, et cetera. And they came to me right, right when the earnout was supposed to happen. And they basically said, uh, we've run the numbers. It's going to be more expensive for us to pay you the rest of your buyout agreement than it will be to defend ourselves in court. So we're taking your company, go kick rocks. And um, so I kind of panicked and called our attorney and said, and he's like, hey, they're right. You know, this is how it goes sometimes. Contracts are not like super crazy restrictive. They're just equations. And that was the first time I ever heard that. I just assumed this is the law. They go to jail. Well, no, that's not what's going to happen. So um, all that said, 
so I'm no stranger to risk and not to this day. It's kind of where I thrive. Um, before entrepreneurship, I was a professional online poker player. Also, as a professional fighter, fought in Thailand, fought in the States. So I'm like, I'm no stranger to putting it all on the line for something I believe in. And like my first company, I started with my student loan money instead of paying tuition, you know, things like that, right? And it, there have been a lot of times where it's worked out for me. There have been some times where it hasn't. And this is one of those times. So we took the buyout agreement before any of the other stuff happened. We took the buyout agreement immediately. And we parlayed that into, we leveraged that with a lender, uh, like a private lender. And that lender basically said, all right, we're going to lend you, um, I think it was like 95% of the capital from the buyout um, upfront. And we'll take all the payments downstream. And you'll also give us like a very small, like single digit piece of this new company. Cool. So we did that and it was going great. The company was called Upshare. We had, I think, like a quarter million users within the first three months. And um, we were just about to start to turn on monetization. I think we had just turned on monetization like a week or two before this happening happened. And it was, it was like early days, but it was good signals early on. And when this all happened, I basically, because the at one point the lender then communicated with me. He's like, I haven't received any mm. like installment payment. So I had to get on the phone with them and say, this is what happened. And this is what they're saying, like help, you know, I'm expecting them to help me go recoup. And they instead called the loan. <laughs> and um, so I have like, and we, I think we took like, I think we balanced out the deal. So we were going to get like a million bucks in cash, something like that to start the company. And um, so I basically split that debt with, with my co-founder um, and it was like, okay, I mean, cause the, the, the language of the deal was so dumb because we personally guaranteed it, which I don't recommend a lot personally of guaranteed the loan. We currently personally guaranteed the loan because neither which, one of us had assets at the time. Which a lot like of we, entrepreneurs do and it's, and mm -hmm. it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. And often yep. you have no other choice. And if you're really going to believe exactly. in yourself, take the risk. I, yep. I don't, I totally get it. I've done it. Even though I knew from my dad at an early age, don't <laughs> ever do it. Yep. Yep. Sometimes so this is one of those times that it's gone wrong. And, um, so, you know, we split the debt. And so I was mid six figures in debt right then. And, um, we basically said, all right, what are we going to do? And one, I mean, the plan was we're going to start another company, but at the same time, we're going to go get jobs in Silicon Valley and we're just going to hustle on the side. And just work ourselves to the bone for as long as it takes to pay this back. Well, we ended up getting jobs in Silicon Valley. And a couple months later, Simon, my business partner, I've been working with for seven years. And I recently met him in person for the very first time after working together for seven years. We were just Skype and Dropbox all day long. And that was before like Skype video as well. So it was all audio calls for seven years. And we finally met in person. Maybe like a month later, he... One of his friends had like was like mentally ill. He took him up into the Canadian Rockies. They were gonna go hiking, get some nature. And his friend kind of had a like a mm. schizophrenic episode and cut his throat and threw him off a wow. cliff. Wow. And it was one of those moments that's like, this is not real. Like this is insane that this happened. I was calling the RCMP every day. I was like, what is happening? Like, find him. This is crazy. Um and, you know, finally got a call from one of his family members that told me what happened. And I was like, and they didn't even know that we had incurred any debt. Like, so I, I didn't even, I was like, okay, my choice. Are you saying your business moment. partner did this? My the business partner was killed. 
He oh, was, was killed. My business card was killed. Was killed by the person who had this episode. Oh yes. my God. Yes. You know, going over your history, I saw how intertwined, even I think on one business where he wasn't your co-founder, he mm -hmm. was the testimonial on the site. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Okay, wait. So you're saying yeah. this business partner was killed? He was killed. Yeah, he okay. was he was killed. Um and so I had a choice in that moment. I was like, I can either let this debt go to his next of kin, which is like his family. They're like retired school teachers in England, or I can just absorb it. And so I just called the lender. I'm like, give it all to me. I'll take it. I'll wow. figure it out. And I didn't want to declare chapter 11 because there's all the consequences that go with that from like being able to get mortgages, being able to be an officer of a publicly traded company at the, in the future, like different consequences that go with that. And I just heard a podcast with Chris Saka talking about how he went, I think it was something insane, like 27 million in debt or something after the 08 crash, because he was doing high leverage trading and figured out a way to pay it back. I'm like, if he can do it with 27, I can do it with a million bucks in change. And so I just like put my head down and negotiated with the lender, con contracted for them a little bit, um, you know, built other things on the side that were kind of just cash flowing businesses that no had no ability to like sell ever, but like made good money in the interim, had the job that I had in Silicon Valley and just did everything I could for three years and eventually paid it back. And uh, that day I put in my letter of resignation and started wow. the journey again. So I think the company was what became lottery.com. Um, it's a place to track your lottery games and that kind of thing. You yeah, earned, that was the job I got. Yes. You earned a million dollars from that job? Uh, not just from that job. No, no, no. It was like that job. I was kind of like taking my cushy Silicon Valley salary and living in the studio apartment and um, just doing what I could. Like I would, I was trading and, and trying to grind things up on the side it was like the early days of crypto super bloom. So I was trying to like take advantage of that trend. I was also like moonlighting and contracting for a number of different companies. Like at the time I had the viral hero blog before it was a book. So I was getting inbound from a bunch of different companies around the world that were asking me to build their viral loops for them. I think like there was the first one was this Irish casino that reached out and they're like, um, you know, well, you, we read your book. We love, or we read your blog. We love it. We want you to, you know, come build our viral loops. So I was like 50 grand. And I just had no idea what they were prepared to I pay. See. And they and instantly agreed. And I was like, man, I should have asked for more. This you is could crazy. have asked for more because you were doing growth hacking at a time when yep. growth hacking was appreciated and before it got ruined yeah. as a term. Yep. Um, Can I tell I think, you one other cool thing that I did yeah. to, to make a little money for this? Oh, so yeah. um, <laughs> this was like a, a weird situation that just doesn't happen very often. So there's like a colloquial pop culture saying like something is the bomb.com, right? You've heard this before. So I bought the bomb.com. I bought the bomb.com from some guy who just had like was squatting on it. And I remember reaching out to him and I'm like, Hey, I'm like a student. I would love to buy this. Like trying to just do the whole thing where, you know, just trying to convince the guy that I'm like, just not going to actually use it for business. And I'm like, I'm a student. I would love to buy this for like my first business or something. He's like, Oh, I've had this for 20 years. I don't think I want to sell it. I'm like, I'll give you $5,000 for it. And he's like, I don't think I could let it go for less than like 20 grand. And I'm like, this guy has no idea what he has. And so I ended up buying this thing for him for set from for 17 grand, which I put all on my credit card. And four days later, resold it to the chive for 80 oh, wow. grand. And, um, 
And so that was like those kinds of weird things, just getting super creative to try to make a couple bucks. And all of that went to the lender. Um, like all of that, like all those kinds of things like chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and was able to like ingratiate myself with the lender enough so that when I was contracting to them internally, like they weren't having to pay me in cash. I was just basically saying, you know, I'll do this thing for you and you'll chip off 50 grand. I'll do that thing for you and you'll chip off a hundred grand. So just long hours. Do you have to pay taxes on what you've earned before you pay it to the lender, right? So Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but if, about earning if money's changing hands, yeah. if money's changing hands, you're right. But they, I had this debt that they owned. And so they were just agreeing to forgive pieces of it over the course of time. So oh, I think Lord. I'm hoping that the IRS isn't listening to this, if this is like actually not a way this works, but um, that was the way that they treated it was they were like, what do you we'll mean they treated this. it? Oh, because the money went to them. Exactly. Not to you. It went directly into, you didn't put it in your account and then transfer to them. No, so when I was when I was contracting for the lender, basically they they said um, like we need this chunk done for this specific thing, and you know, and I was like, I'll do it. I want like fifty grand of my debt forgiven after the project is done, and so that that's essentially part of what the process was. There was there were there were like chunks of cash that I would pay them that I was taxed on. Uh, yeah. But like for the contract I did with them, it was all negotiation. Oh, because they would get you a client. You would do the work for their client. They would pocket the money directly. That's exactly right. That's interesting. I wonder if that does allow any, any tax. No clue. Not a, no clue. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so what yeah, letter was, are we talking about? Are we talking about an individual who you lent money, who you borrowed money it from? It was like, um, it was a, a guy that I had met through, I think like a mastermind or maybe it was through like the warrior forum or something back in the day. Yeah. And he was running, like he was basically like a, a kind of a hybrid between an, uh, an institution and an angel investment. It was like an angel investment syndicate, but they also had service offerings that they, they did like client work. It was, it was a very strange, <laughs> like very complicated business. Um, but they did a lot of like investing through services for companies Mm -hmm. uh, so they would get equity in exchange for a bunch of outsourced software development or a bunch of marketing work. There were a bunch like of companies that. that tried that and it, for the most part, it didn't work and it didn't work because they'd have to pay upfront for all their developers yeah. and they wouldn't get whatever riches they got until later on. And sometimes, and often in fact, they wouldn't even get that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, and it was, it's a super complicated business too, if you get Very. involved in it and simplicity is your best friend when it comes to, to business. So that was that, that weird story. Okay. So then you finally quit because you mm -hmm. pay off. And then what's the next thing that you do? Um, so the next one was I started running a, what I was like, so I, I had helped um, a couple companies raise capital at the time. Like the benefit of going to Silicon Valley was I did finally learn how to raise money. And so immediately my, my mind goes to like crypto is super new. So you know, let's try to get into some sort of like boutique investment bank type of business. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. We helped, I think, 35 companies raise capital. Um, we helped um, a couple companies do their first security token offering when that was like the first thing, because Lottery was one of the first companies to actually do that. And so I was able to be privy to exactly how that worked. To, to do what? To do like a, a security token offering. So it was like an actual like ICO, but in a SEC compliant fashion. I didn't realize so it was like did very that. transparent. Okay. And um, so you yeah, saw they how did. they did it and you saw that there were other organizations that want to do the same thing. Essentially, 
raise IPO style money, but mm -hmm. through a token offering. Yeah. And so you were helping them do that. And so that's what, what was that company called? It was called Light Something. Uh, no, Live It Up. Was it Live I Up Ventures? No. You know, that's a good question. I mean, I had a company called Bax that was like helping these companies raise, raise Bax capital. is the name oh. of your company. You know, Bax is the name I've, of the company, yeah. I have multiple screens of LinkedIn of data on you, and there's still more than, <laughs> than what's on here. You just keep starting these companies up? I mean, at the time I was, at the time I just was like of the mindset that I was just like, I was somebody that had to have multiple projects. Um, and I didn't realize until like maybe the first decade of my entrepreneurial journey was done. I was shooting myself in the foot by not going super deep into one thing. Uh, okay. I was, had like entrepreneurial ADD. Now the, the nice part about that is it paid me dividends in education beyond anything I've ever done. And I have an MBA now, like I got that between exit seven and eight. I ha I am a doctoral candidate now. And the interesting because you wrote a blog post years ago saying MMA is better than an MBA, meaning like you did. I really, Oh my God, you really yes. did do your homework, Andrew. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And I, wow. I would have had no context to know that because I didn't have any semblance of a business degree. And honestly, it's probably accurate. Like I would say maybe five to 10% of what I learned in the MBA program was something that was like new information, but most of the time they're studying people like us in, in those programs. So how do you not go crazy when you're starting all these different companies, when you're doing all these different projects, how do you actually deliver good stuff and not, I don't know, yeah, drop the question. ball and then fall behind and have to apologize mm -hmm. to one person because you fall, you fell behind with someone else and then you're falling behind even further. Like yep. how do you keep it all organized? Good question. So the way that I did it then as I was building tech companies, I wasn't like, except for that one situation with cyber superpowers, I wasn't doing client work. There were no like client accounts that I was having to juggle. Uh, so there was no expectations that I needed to manage. All that was happening through software and automation, et cetera. Um, so like being able to partner with great people and have great teams was a piece of the puzzle. But I would also now as like 35 year old Travis, not recommend that path to anyone. I, I recommend, really rigorously recommend a depth of focus, like be the best in the world at one thing and just make it as simple as you humanly possibly can. Um, and, and the outcomes that you can create as a result of those decisions are going to be exponentially greater because, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs like me, their brain is a constant idea factory. And the moment you learn, you can physically, you have the ability to create anything you want. You won't also couple that with the discipline to not do that thing. <laughs> so these days, if somebody asks me what I do when I have a new idea, I try to forget it. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the biggest hack for me now. Um, but at the time, honestly, it was like, you know, if I had an idea, I was like, the whole world is, is my oyster. Like, let's, let's do it. And um, it did lead to some really good outcomes. And I've had a really wonderful life thus far as a result. I mean, I'm reaping some of the rewards now, but I also believe that had I chosen one thing, because I know a lot of really, like, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that I know, like, uh, just this might not be a popular take because it's not exactly like humble or anything like that. But I know that a lot of the entrepreneurs I know, I think that I'm a more um, capable and experienced entrepreneur than they are, but they're leaps and bounds ahead of me in various ways because of their commitment and their depth I'm thinking of about someone like Andrea decade. Lake. She did that one sticker business. She still and that has one it. Stick, she still has it. That one yeah. sticker business basically 
has done killer business. I don't know if she's done anything else, but she'll she'll try. Yes. I guess yeah. she, she tries other stuff, and she's, she's with a, that. She's a full time crypto trader now. Like she, she is? she she is. Yeah, she's she. I would say Andrea Lake. If Andrea Lake is listening, Andrea Lake is single handedly responsible for almost one hundred percent of the business network I have today. Like I didn't have any mentors when I was first getting started in business and uh, I didn't know anybody who was an entrepreneur and I saw this DVD of young millionaires that had made it. And one of the, one of the lessons taught in the DVD was find a mentor. And I didn't know where, where else to start except for the cold call everybody that was on the DVD. And she was one of them and she was the only one that responded and we're super good friends to this day. And, um, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from Andrea. So Sticker so, yeah, Junkie, here it is. 1999, she started Sticker Junkie. 25 years selling stickers. Yeah. And she goes, there's a lot of money in stickers. I, I talked to her too in an interview and it was just amazing, yeah. but I didn't realize that she'd done more than that. I thought I thought she had side hobbies like uh, like yoga, but maybe she's, she's not the perfect example of someone who just stays focused on one thing. Right, yeah, I mean, like there are, I mean, think about like some of the big personalities in, in entrepreneurship today, like Ed Milet. Ed Milet has had one, one financial business for like 25 years. I think he Who has, it. and he, Ed Milet is like a big time, like internet marketing guru or like inspirational speaker guy. And just that one business. And he's probably had some side things here and there, but that's the one that he's famous for. And he's run it for like 25 years. And it's one of the largest financial firms on, on the planet or something like that. So just that level of discipline, I think is an unappreciated skill. So, so if often, you could have focused, I I think that growth hacking, if you would have like adjusted the branding of it as it went, that could have been an interesting agency, but agency work sucks for you. Mm-hmm. I think cyber superpowers, yep. it makes sense. I get your point about the name being a little bit silly, but <laughs> sure. there are a lot of businesses that need an outsourced CMO, an outsourced mm-hmm. CFO, and essentially that's what you're providing. They're not at a place where they could pay somebody $150,000 a year or even a hundred just to be a CFO, but they do need somebody to look at their their finances beyond doing the books. That kind yeah. of thing still makes sense, don't you think? I do. Yeah. I think especially these days where, right. where you know, you've got um, a lot of people want a more flexible, flexible work environment. A lot of people, you know, really want to ensure that they can take control of their own income potential and they want it to be uncapped. Um, you know, after my last exit, there were a couple opportunities that I actually took advantage of. And, you know, I became a, a like an interim VP of growth for, for a, f- a few companies, like on a temporary and fractional basis. And it was awesome. Uh, my, my buddy, Sean Ellis, who wrote Hacking Growth, like does yeah. that for a lot of companies to this day. He'll come on as an interim VP of growth for six months. And then eventually like he'll install his system. He'll hire the, the permanent VP of growth to replace him. And then he'll like advise in the system afterwards. And he does phenomenally well. Sean so, great at that. And also the other cool thing about Sean is that makes him a perfect fit for this is he has that McKinsey feel and look to him, but he also looks like a guy you'd want to just kind of hang out at a bar after after true. hours with, you know? True. And that combination and makes him trustworthy. He is both, genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um all right, yeah, let, me close, great. let me close out with this. It seems like it's real estate that's really giving you all the com- the comfort to the FU money comes from real estate. How did you get into real estate? And I know we have like one minute, but if you could give me like a transition into that world that gave you the, the FU money, I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, I think that like it would have been 
just the old school rich dad, poor dad stuff that I read way back in the day. Uh, you need to have your investment income. You need to have, you, get, you need to get out of the rat race, you know, playing the cash flow board game and trying to translate that to real life. Um, and recognizing that, you know, traditional retirement accounts, if you can actually have a portfolio of cash flowing real estate are kind of immaterial, like you can reap those rewards today rather than when you're 65 uh, or beyond. And I don't really ever want to retire, quote unquote. I just want to continue to do the things that I love. So being able to take a portion of my income or any acquisition I've had and put it in real estate at any moment in time um, has been fantastic. You know, I've got I got a good chunk of mailbox money every single month and I have a great property manager. I own a, a nice little portfolio of properties in, in Las Vegas where I do not live. And um, it was just a good market. And uh, so I have a property manager there that just takes care of everything. They just send me checks. And, um, you know, thankfully, because of that, I can take more risks as an entrepreneur and not necessarily be concerned with paying the bills and things like that. So um, would definitely recommend it for anybody who has been only in the active income category for a long time. Yeah, I do think in tech, I always thought we just stay in tech, everything else just sucks. But I can see that there are a lot of people who, for whom it didn't suck. All right. Uh, how do people find you? Where online is a good spot? Finally, on online, uh, on socials for the first time in history, basically. Um, I, I revolted against them for a long time because I felt that they were a time suck and uh, bad for mental mental health. And as founder, you don't really need that. Um now, thankfully, I'm just trying to, to give to other founders and teach as much of, of what I've learned as I can. So just Travis Steffen, at Travis Steffen, T-R-A-V-I-S-S-T-E-F-F-E-N on Instagram. Um, I've also started to create some content for Twitter and LinkedIn. I'll probably start to continue to do that more and more as the year goes on. And um, over the course of time, I mean, I also am a mentor for the biggest accelerator programs in Silicon Valley and outside of Silicon Valley. So if you're an entrepreneur in any of those, you'll find me, I'm sure. Um, and just, you know, kind of trying to be more and more active in any of the communities that podcast hosts create that I'm able to chat with their audience on. So um, those are a couple places. All right. You got a radio interview to do in less than a minute. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to say thank you for being on here. Glad we reconnected. And thank you all for listening. Bye, everyone.